0: Welcome to a very special episode of the Equip Project podcast. A couple of weeks back, I asked Jim if he'd be willing to record a brief Christmas reflection for us as we come to the end of what's been a tough and uncertain year. And I really hope this short message will be a blessing to you guys as we stand on the brink of 2021. I want to thank you so much for sticking with us and encouraging us throughout this year. And we can't wait to walk alongside you again in the coming months as we continue to think through some of the cultural and intellectual challenges to the Christian faith. All that remains is to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and God's richest blessing for 2021. And now, over to Jim. This is going to be a rather weird Christmas. In recent days, the clouds that have hung over the world for all of this year have grown even darker. A new strain of the COVID virus may well be even more infectious than the variant that has already wreaked havoc across the globe. There's no doubt that January and February are going to be difficult for us all. So you probably suspect that I'm going to give you a hopeful and inspiring thought to lighten your mood. Well, in one sense I am going to try and do that, but allow me to go about my task in a rather odd way. I want to begin by making the simple point that life is serious. It's sometimes grim. I often wonder if the events of 2020 have been designed to help us understand what Christians down through the centuries took for granted. Life is serious and it is sometimes grim. Christian preachers like me are very fond of saying that the true meaning of Christmas is obscured by the commercialization of the season. The story of the manger is pushed aside to make room for Rudolph and the elves and the ringing of cash registers in shops. Well, that's true, of course, but often the authentic story of Christmas gets buried by Christians ourselves. Now, to explain that, let me quote a lyric from a song called Song for Whoever. It was written by a group called The Beautiful South, who were quite well known when I was a student back in the mid-1980s. The group claimed to be Christian Marxists, whatever that means, and they wrote a lot of ironic, slightly subversive songs. And the one called Song for Whoever is a cynical piece about the superficiality of teenage love songs. And it begins with the utterly brilliant line, I love you from the bottom of my pencil case. That phrase encapsulates the vacuous, the cheap and cheerful attitude to life that we often find in popular culture. But without wishing to assume the role of the Grinch here, it has to be said that sometimes it also describes a lot of evangelicalism today. There's a risk that... We live in a bubble that insulates us from the deep realities of the human condition, from its joys and anguish and injustice. Now maybe that's an unfair perception, but I know some non-Christians who think they struggle with the emotional depth of Virgil and Malor, while we Christians are satisfied with celebrity pastors and smoke machines. There's certainly one criticism of us that cannot be disputed. We have followed popular culture in showing a complete disregard for history. In one of the Peanuts cartoon strips, Charlie Brown's little sister Sally is writing an essay about the history of the Christian church. The essay begins, When writing about church history, we have to go back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in 1980. Many of us don't really value the grand story of the Christian church over the past two millennia. What have we in common with Athanasius or Peter Waldo or Jan Hus? Unless Tertullian played bass in the latest Bethel album, he is not deemed to be relevant. So it can look from a distance as if evangelicals love God from the bottom of their pencil cases. Now, that's an unfair caricature, of course, but there is a seed of truth in it. And as a result, we sometimes insulate ourselves from the heart-rending realities of the Christmas story. So for a few moments, I want to think about Mary, the mother of the Lord. And in particular, I want to consider the soul of Mary as revealed to us in the Gospel of Luke. Mary's story has profound emotional depth. We first meet her as a young girl, probably still a teenager, raised in the conservative, devoted community of faith that lived in Nazareth. She was extremely well taught in the Hebrew Scriptures. She knew her Bible and her hymns off by heart. While she may not have had a formal education, it's clear that Mary was intelligent, She thought deeply about the world, a world full of injustice and oppression, as well as goodness. The most obvious feature of Mary's soul is that she was a spiritual young woman. She exhibits this lovely mixture of humility and eagerness. Sometimes her soul is troubled and perplexed. At other times she's filled with this exuberant, blazing joy. One of the things I respect most about Mary is her unself consciousness We live in a world where young people find it difficult not to present themselves uh, as a carefully curated image. But Mary had a lovely innocence, unspoilt by conceit. It would never have entered her head to take a selfie, even if she could. Mary had fallen in love with a good and righteous man called Joseph. The couple got engaged. But now the Christmas story starts to reveal its emotional depths. You see, Mary's innocent obedience to the angel's announcement that she would bear the Saviour of the world while still a virgin, that gets tested. We can imagine the gossips at the well and in the taverns of Nazareth. They would have told a mean and crude story. And worse, her betrothed had simply no reason to believe her. No one in that conservative Jewish culture would have had any such reason. But Joseph was a good and upright man, He had no desire to bring shame on Mary, even though his trust in the girl had been shattered. So he was considering a quiet divorce. I love the little detail in Matthew's account, which tells us that as soon as Joseph has told the truth about Mary, he goes immediately to her. An angel had appeared to him in a dream, and as soon as he wakes up, says Matthew, he goes to her family home. Scripture tells the story of Christmas in such a sparing way. I mean, that's the mark of truly great art, if nothing else. But I cannot help myself from wondering how that moment of reconciliation between Mary and Joseph went. For the rest of their lives, the townsfolk of Nazareth would believe that Jesus was illegitimate. But now Mary knew that her love believed her. All the distrust caused by her apparent infidelity drained away. I wonder if she returned his embrace his shoulder wet with her tears. Mary had been vindicated in the eyes of her betrothed, and that was really all that mattered. The greatness of Mary's soul is most evident in that part of Luke's Gospel known as the Magnificat, that great song of praise that erupts from Mary's heart. It shows us someone who could see beyond the immediate and the personal and understand the grand context in which her life was set. So let's read it together now. Uh, I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Critical scholars are so impressed with Mary's song that they claim that it's an invention An uneducated woman could never have made this up, they say. Well, critics like that have never attended a church prayer meeting. Sometimes we listen to the prayers of godly men who never received a formal education. But their minds are saturated with Scripture and with the hymns of their tradition. Their intelligence and spiritual insight is articulated using Scripture and hymns. So it's completely authentic that someone from Mary's background would have spoken the words of the Magnificent. The song divides into three sections. In the first four verses, we see into Mary's heart. This stanza is full of innocent delight in the God who saves her. She was a godly young woman, but she needed a saviour like the rest of us. She tells us that herself. It's obvious that she understands the uh, earth-shattering significance of her role in bearing the saviour, but there's not a hint of conceit or pride. She tells us that she will be remembered as blessed by future generations, but why? Because she is the mother of the Lord? No, she never takes that title upon herself. She will be remembered, she says, because he who is mighty has done great things for her. And then, in glad acknowledgement of her creaturehood, she says of God, holy is his name. The middle stanza seems at first sight to be about politics. She talks a lot about oppression and bringing down the mighty from their thrones. Some critical scholars try to portray Mary as some sort of Marxist revolutionary. But they really don't understand Mary. She was a young woman of colour who lived under the oppressive jackboot of the Roman Empire. She was poverty stricken. And because she wasn't a Roman citizen, she was othered to use the language of critical theory. I mention that term because in terms of ideas... The year 2020 will be remembered as a year when critical theory entered the mainstream of political life. The murder of George Floyd in May of this year triggered a worldwide social movement. Even footballers wore Black Lives Matter armbands and took the knee before their matches. Now critical theory emerges from Marxism. Marx, you may recall, uh, called for the proletariat to overthrow the bourgeoisie. He saw all of history as the story of oppression. And critical theory broadens Marx's class warfare out. It also sees history as the story of oppression, but not just the oppression based on class distinctions. Now the oppression is psychological. The oppressor creates a culture designed to subjugate the minority groups who are on the fringes of society. So all of life reduces to a power struggle. Well, Mary cared deeply about social justice, but she was no Marxist revolutionary. Her song is built on the idea that it is God who will bring down the oppressive power structures of this world. And how did he do that? Well, it wasn't by exerting more power. He subverted the power structures of this world through obedience. That's Paul's argument in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our Lord chose to be born in poverty, the son of a powerless woman of colour. He didn't arrive as a military general or a philosopher king. He was known as the carpenter's son. He lived outside of what critical theorists call hegemonic power structures. And in the end, the powerful elite took an innocent man and did him to death. By oppression he was taken away, says Isaiah. And yet, Mary's son has undone the kingdoms of this world. Because he was obedient to death on a cross, he has built an eternal kingdom based on godly values. It wasn't built by revolutionaries. It was built by the Spirit of God who brought together people from every ethnicity into the body of Christ. Christ's kingdom will reign long after the kingdoms of this world have crashed to the ground. So Mary's message to young men and women in 2020 is that it is the gospel, and only the gospel, that will bring about social justice. So don't follow Marx in your journey to social justice. Follow Mary's son. Walk the path of suffering and submission to authority because it is obedience to God that subverts oppression. In the final two verses of The Magnificat, Mary's mind stares across history and sees that her nation's story, and indeed all of world history, is driven by the promises of God. He has helped his servant Israel as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, she says. This is the hallmark of a man or a woman of God. They don't fall into despair over political conflicts or culture wars. They have an unshakable faith in the purposes of God. History is God's story. And the Christmas story demonstrates that truth better than any other. A poor young woman lived in a despised neighbourhood, disrespected by her oppressors. But she delighted in God with a faith that was vibrant and real. And so she and Joseph raised their firstborn son in complete obscurity and poverty. But now, now he sits enthroned on high, at the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory and honour. The greatness of Mary's soul was built out of her conviction that it is God who saves. We aren't saved by scientists or politicians. It is God who is our saviour. But Mary's great soul was also forged in the crucible of suffering. You see, there came a day when Mary stood at the foot of a Roman cross and looked up at her firstborn. She could remember the first time she had kissed his forehead, comforted him when he was cold or hungry. But now the powerful elite mock him as he dies. Life is serious. Sometimes it is grim. But if we are to stop loving God from the bottom of our pencil cases, then God might allow a sword to pierce our hearts as it did to Mary. Suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Suffering is the path to glory. As a teenage mother-to-be, Mary's heart had been filled with an innocent delight in the God who saves her. But standing at the foot of the cross, an older Mary still trusts in the God who saves her. She could remember back years earlier to that trauma of her estrangement from her betrothed. But that trauma had been temporary, Why? Because God had vindicated her innocence. And so now, as an older woman, she can still hope that once again God will vindicate the innocent. A few days later, Mary got that vindication. She heard news that she hadn't heard for a long time. There were angels around, lots of them. The garden of the tomb was ablaze with angelic activity, heralding the greatest news ever. Her son was alive. God had once again vindicated the innocent. Christ had triumphed, not just over the petty politicians and dictators of this world. He had triumphed over the vast spiritual intelligences that had such power over our lives before the cross. The oppressive structures of the unseen world had been defeated. And so, as Mary listened to Mary Magdalene and Peter and her newly adopted son John, as she heard them tell about their encounters with the risen Christ, She knew at an even deeper level that history is driven by the promises of God. Mary had greatness of soul. We honour a woman who bore for us the Saviour, remembering that her life contained tragedy as well as joy. And that perhaps is the point I've been trying to make. We should expect some tragedy in our lives. Without suffering, our hearts would simply not have the capacity to love; They would be as shallow as a pencil case. It is the difficulties and the tragedies that develop greatness of soul. My fondness for eccentric musical endings continues. The music we're about to hear is a very old medieval carol called A Rose is Ever Blooming. It uses the image of a rose emerging from a stem to describe Mary as the end of the line of the Lord's human genealogy producing the rose that is Christ. It was very popular in the 17th century. And then hundreds of years later, the Nazis tried to change the words to make it into a song about the fatherland. Now they have been consigned to the dustbin of history, and God's people still sing this ancient carol. The last verse says, This flower whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air, dispels in glorious splendour the darkness everywhere. True man, yet very God, from sin and death he saves us, and bears our every load. On behalf of Ollie, can I wish you and your loved ones a very happy Christmas.
1: spin. a Savior when half spent was Sinner yeah.